Welcome to Reconvene 2021, sponsored by Juniper Square, which provides a cloud-based investment management platform used by probably half the real estate private equity operators in the audience today. This conversation is with Elliot Benkuya, co-founder and a partner at Triperion Partners, which is a real estate private investment firm that provides investment management services to a range of foundations, family offices, and high net worth investors. Thanks for having me, Moses, but I'm not going to cure anybody of anything. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the market is the market. Here we go. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, let's get started by, I guess, um, j- just to give everyone a sense for your vantage point on the market. Maybe you could uh, give us a, a brief kind of introduction to, to your business and, uh, and, and how you're seeing the world right now. Uh, sure. So Triperion is, we're a small, um, mid-sized fund. Uh, we, we're on our third fund. It's $60 million. We started in 2013 with a $50 million fund. And so we're generally allocators. The way that we view the world is we're typically allocators in the 3 to $15 million range. Uh, all asset classes, generally majority LP, but we look up and down the cap stack. We'll do MES loans. We'll do preferred equity. Um, and we, we will buy deals directly. We have bought deals directly, specifically office buildings, some shopping centers. Um, but we have a pretty, uh, not so much in the coastal markets, generally in the non-coastal markets. Um, but we kind of have a, you know, a wider lens. Um, we kind of see everything. And that's, I mean, again, uh, uh, as, you, as everyone knows by now, uh, I'm so focused on apartments in LA and I've got this tiny little aperture through which I view the world. And Elliot and his, and his team are obviously looking across all different asset classes, geographies, up and down the capital stack, and so uh, and so is in a position to kind of compare risk-adjusted returns and terms uh, across different kinds of deals in a way that, that that I'm not, and I think many of us aren't. So that's that's kind of what we're going to try to talk about today. Um, first, I want to um, I want to start by asking about that distinction between operator and allocator, though. Um, you have the ability to buy deals direct, and you have done a lot of that. And then, of course, as we've been discussing, you have the ability to allocate to, to other people's deals. Um, let's talk first about uh, how you make the decision uh, between the two. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, because we are not an expert in any particular asset class, we kind of know our limitations. Um, so, for example, you know, when it comes to, to retail, you know, we bought a shopping center directly. Um, it was generally, it was, a, it was a pretty stabilized shopping center. We just had to sell some pads and do, you know, do a handful of extensions and move on. And even on something, and we just bought it because it was cheap, it was in San Antonio, um, we were getting a lot of cash flow, and after you sell the pads, we were, out of the, we were totally out of the deal and owned the rest of the shopping center for free. So it was like a financing game. Can you just, I just want to make sure everyone heard that. You bought this thing. Uh, there was so much cash flow coming in that you could, between the cash flow and the, and selling the pads, that you guys could have all your equity back and then just have like an, a, a permanent cash machine. Yeah, and lenders, and in particular CMBS lenders, are like you know terminal cash flow brain. So like you just carve out the pads from the you know, from the CMBS loan, and uh, you own the, you you own those free and clear. So that's not their collateral. <laughs> you sell that. That's your money. And now you know you just cash flow. Um, and you either sell the building or you sell the building to the lender in seven years and give it back to them. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of like weird anomalies in the market like that. Um, and you know, to be clear, like I am a real estate person, but I'm also like fundamentally a finance person. My background is in finance. So, you know, everybody gets sent uh, investment package or an OM or whatever, 
and they see like, you know, real estate and I see real estate too, but I also, I, you know, I also see just like, I just see, you know, numbers. cash flows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So you, in addition to the shopping center you've done, you've also built up a pretty large portfolio of office buildings. Correct. Yeah. So when we started in 2013, um, and, uh, to be clear, when we started in 2013, we very much started on third base. Um, you know, one of, uh, I started Triperion with my two partners. We were all colleagues together at our prior private equity firm. Um, one of my partners, you know, has access uh, to capital through the family money. So, um, you know, we started very much on third base. Um, we've since expanded our investor base over the next couple funds. Um, but it's not like we were 30 year olds and they were like, wow, these guys are really good. <laughs> Here's $50 million to yeah. do whatever you want with. Right, exactly. So, I mean, we started, you know, we, we, we very much had a leg up. But when we, uh, but our thesis leaving this firm was, uh, so I covered the Midwest um, for acquisitions um, at my old firm. And there were just a lot of deals in the Midwest at the time in 2013 that were trading at tremendously high cap rates, even for very good real estate, in particular office buildings that had a lot of contractual cash flow. Um, but, the, but the debt was not differentiating pricing-wise between something in LA and something in St. Louis. So we were making, you know, we were trying to get our old firm to like buy these. They were like, mm no way i don't even know where st louis is so we said okay then i guess we'll just go do it ourselves so can i uh, let me jump in there because i want to just make sure that everyone's clear about what's going on so let's talk about the real estate first then we'll talk about the debt on those so in terms of the real estate you got these uh well-located office buildings and when you say contractual revenue uh rents you're talking about credit tenants here yeah we're talking about like you know energizers headquarters panera's headquarters i mean you know very large established tenants with you know eight to ten years of term left and so you've got these office buildings with, you know, eight to 10 years of term left trading at nine caps and the debt is L plus 215. <laughs> and so you just buy it and then you just have, you know, 16, 17% in place cash flow from the day that you buy it. Um, and what do and you think was going, I mean, obviously when I hear things like, and, and, and obviously these, these opportunities probably don't exist anymore or, or they do not. They didn't. Right. Yeah, right, um, yeah. So <laughs> don't everyone get excited. <laughs> um, but I, I do want to drill in like, like, um, your old firm said, no, thank you. When you try to pitch these deals to them. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that those, I mean, is that, are the high cap rates just a reflection of basically all of these smart coastal real estate firms saying, forget it, we're not going to do that. So there was the opportunity. Like why were these things available at those cap rates? It was available at those cap rates at the time, because that's not where the mandate driven investment flows were flowing. And at the time, you know, uh, and, and it's just, Look, this whole thing is about flows. It's always about flows. Everything is about flows. And like, that's just not where it was flowing. Um, and so we went there and, you know, we came in there and we said, hey, you know, we're these guys from L.A. We've got a 50 million dollar fund. And everybody's like, oh, awesome. Somebody Thank showed God. Up. Yeah, <laughs> it's like so great. Somebody showed up here. Wonderful. Um, and, you know, today you show up and they're like, I'm sorry, I have, you know, 10 family offices with a hundred million dollar line of credit. Get in line. Um, and so that's just, you know, it's a little less interesting. So, so that we talked about the, the availability of the assets themselves. Let's talk about the debt. Like, um, to me, the equity markets were pricing in a lot of risk, either a lot of risk or, or else, uh, uh, concern about, about lack of rent growth going forward. Like that's why there's a nine cap there. Right. Um, but the debt was willing to be really cheap. Like why, 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 why was the debt available at those, at that rate? The debt was available because, you know, from a bank's perspective, um, you know, if something is like 60% leverage, they'll lend on it. And they're not even, if it has cash flow and it hits certain metrics, 
Um, yeah, they'll look at the real estate, but as long as it hits certain metrics, you'll generally find a lender who's going to do it, especially if you're not, you know, trying to get 75, 80% leverage. And so for your, for you guys, like, you yeah, so that was like, we did a bunch of deals with Wells Fargo at L plus 215. Um, but what's really funny about that is this is also very stupid. We went to the Wells Fargo in LA and they were like, sorry, you don't bank with us. We don't know who you are. Um, so then we ended up with the Wells Fargo CMBS group in, uh, New York. And the Wells Fargo CMBS, but we said we don't want a CMBS loan, we want a bridge loan. And the CMBS loan group in New York was like, oh, that's okay, we have like a little side pocket to do, you know, bridge loans out of the CMBS group in New York. So then we got rejected by Wells Fargo LA, uh, and then we ended up doing the deal with Wells Fargo's bridge loan, same balance sheet, different group, in a side pocket. It's like incredibly stupid. <laughs> and was it just, I mean, now this is, I, got, I want to pull that thread a little bit. Um, was there a loan broker working on your behalf or how did yeah, you? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. So someone good, like just running down all the different options yeah, uh -huh, for sure. And they earned their money there. It sounds like they did for sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, so you, I guess my next question is you've never owned an office building in St. Louis before. So how do you go about like figuring out how to manage that? And yeah. So, uh, so between my three partners, um, one of, uh, one of us, uh, is essentially investor relations. I was mostly acquisitions and our third partner came from the asset management side. So we kind of had all three, um, departments when we started. Um, and, uh, we really let him run with it. He's a phenomenal operator, um, of, uh, of pretty much all asset classes is actually very impressive. And we, you know, we, we, we spent a lot of time in St. Louis that, that, that year. Uh, meeting with property managers, um, uh, you know, leasing brokers, whatever. And the nice part is it's not a big city. So, you know, you spend a few weeks there um, and you're, you know, you spend a few weeks there and you're the only person coming in to buy stuff. Like you're everybody's best friend. So um, you, so immediately you close on the first one, immediately people start handing you more opportunities. Uh, yeah. And then when we went to buy the second one, they knew that we had just closed on that first one and the, and we already had an established team. And so now you start to get, you know, scale on the property management side. Um, you know, your property manager scales between them, your vendor scale. And so that's kind of how it started. So, um, how large a port, I don't know if you've started to sell these at all, but what, how large a portfolio did you guys? Yeah, no, with? it's embarrassing how small our portfolio is at this point. Um, uh, considering how much that we've sold over the last year. So I think, you know, or last few years. So, I mean, I think at our peak, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but we probably owned, you know, 18 to 20 properties across all asset classes and, you know, Minneapolis, Indianapolis, St. Louis, San Antonio, Phoenix, et cetera. Um, and I think, I don't know, we have five properties left. We've been selling stuff very heavily over, you know, the last few years um, and redeploying into, we could talk about it, but more structured finance stuff. Yeah, I actually, I think that's a, that, that actually is a great uh, segue to talking about what you're doing now. So, um, you, and this, this flexibility that you have to, to, to start out being, you know, an operator, because that what, is what made sense, uh, to then sell because presumably you feel like valuations are toppy. Yeah, so look, here's how it went. So we started buying these office buildings in St. Louis, and we were buying them directly, and they were great. Uh, but that opportunity dried up pretty quickly in 2013, 14, the cap rate started to compress very quickly. And so we, you know, then we started to do more value add deals. When we did the value add deals, we became, you know, at the beginning, let's say half of the stuff that we bought was, uh, direct acquisitions and half was majority LP with local operators and joint ventures. Over time that switched to, you know, where 80% of the stuff that we were doing, we were the majority equity partner as the LP in a joint venture with an operator who was actually good at 
you know, operating and adding value as opposed to us. We were just playing, you know, at that point, kind of just a, you know, yeah, we did leasing, but I mean, it was really just a market bet. Um, but yeah, as, as those cap rates compressed and we had to actually properly add value, then we worked with local operators to buy hospitality, to buy, you know, retail with somebody who could actually, you know, lease it that has the relationships in retail. And that's where we learned that, you know, look, I, we can't operate a hospital, you know, a hotel. Um, in the retail space, you really have to have relationships with, with retailers. Um, you can't just, you know, it's, it's not like an office building where you just hire an office broker. I mean, it is kind of, but it's, it's a lot less. Like, the relationships in retail matter a lot more than a relationship with some, you know, somebody using office desk. So I want to ask, and, um, and this is, maybe we're just getting back to my personal uh, uh, psychosis here, but like, terrifying. You're, you're going to go, you're going you're gonna to pick out some local operator uh, who has a track record, but presumably you don't, you don't know them before you start looking at deal. Now, do they come to you bringing a deal, looking to get it capitalized? How are you meeting these people? I guess we're going to the markets. We're meeting with brokers. You're meeting with you know a lot of operators, and uh, and you know you you turn over a lot of rocks with a lot of operators, and you usually don't do the first few deals that you see with somebody. See how somebody thinks, see how they operate, and then eventually you know you buy it. But the one thing that was always really comforting to us going to these markets and working with operators that we hadn't never worked with is that we are fundamentally like I have a very I have a I don't know I have a tick or something like that that like if it doesn't cash flow like we I have a problem with it um, and so we were always uh, you know we were yes we were working with operators that we didn't know but we were buying industrial properties in Minneapolis at an eight and a half cap and like if nothing happened then you get a 13 and it's you know cheap to operate so you know that's okay and um, how, so I'm imagining that also doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> Don't everyone get excited there. Um, I'm imagining, you know, uh, it's one thing to do deals with people you've done a lot of them with, right? It makes the negotiating the agreements easy and there's a lot of trust and everything with these one-off type relationships. I imagine that process of negotiating terms and documenting them is potentially more fraught. Can we talk about like like the nuts and bolts of actually organizing? Are these guys coming to you with like a proposed LOI? Here's the deal. Here are the terms I want. Or are you getting involved earlier to kind of structure the terms with them? Uh, yeah, we're generally getting involved earlier. And then, you know, typically it works. We put terms in front of them. They say, that's not enough fees. That's not enough promote. And then, you know, you fight over it a little bit. Um, and then you try to just do the deals with the people that like, yeah, even though you're fighting over it, you can see through that they're actually like a good person because you can put whatever you want in a document unless you're, you know, doing a deal with somebody who at heart you like have a gut feeling is a good person. You can't structure around that. Right. Um, and so, yeah, you know, the it, it you know, the back and forth is uh, it, it all becomes kind of typical what the back and forth is. But as long as there's a good person sitting on the other end of that you know, table, um, then you do it. If, if you get the heebie jeebies about whether or not that person's a good person, then you could just kind of drop it regardless. And is that that heebie, the heebie jeebies you're talking about? I imagine you're, the answer to this is going to be both. But I guess I could imagine a couple of different things. One is like just like interpersonal stuff. Like someone's just kind of like rubbing you the wrong way. The other possibility would be someone negotiating in a particular manner. In other words, emphasizing certain terms over others. Um, which are, are both of those things are important to you or, or, or does one of them or the other give you more pause? 
I think you just, it's not even those things. It's like, how are they, how are they, you know, are they, are they thoughtful about the way that they are diligencing the, the property or thinking about it? Or are they just like, um, are they, are, you know, are they just like, oh, here, the, the broke, here's the broker package. What do, what do you, what do you think? Should we do this deal? And I was like, I don't know. Should we do this deal? What do you think? Um, uh, you know, you could tell who's like remarketing the deal, um, and who has actually thought about the ways in which they can perform. So, okay. So, so you, it's a matter of like thoughtfulness. It's like, are they thoughtful? Are they, you know, are, are they, are they just walking away from the table from you when you, you know, put something in front of them? Or are they like, okay, let's work together. You know, here's a very detailed, here's a very detailed business plan. I've really thought about it. That makes sense to me. In terms of documenting itself, like, are you imposing on them your deal docs? Like, are you, is it your attorneys and you, you put the, the, the deal, the, the docs in front of them or is it more? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And you have, I imagine since you're putting your, but we're controlling investor. I mean, we're like 90% of the capital. We're not, we're not so that's what I was going to ask. So, okay. So you're going to, so, and, um, so you're going to get uh, a bunch of control provisions, right? Uh, yeah, we're going to get a bunch of control. We're going to get all the control provisions other than things that might expose them to personal, personal bankruptcy. Recurves. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So I want to, I, uh, uh, this is obviously old hat to you cause you've negotiated a lot of these things before, but I think a lot of people in the audience, uh, if they've raised investor capital, have probably done so via syndications where it's like a bunch of small checks and no one really, they're in the driver's seat visa and the investors are either taking the terms or not. Um, so, but we've done a bunch of these uh, uh, joint ventures where, where we're working with one capital partner who's putting up all the money. So I've been on sort of the other side of the table from mm -hmm. the one that you're describing right now. Talk to me about specifically what those control, like what, what, are, you, what are you actually asking for? Uh, we are asking for everything that isn't bankruptcy. <laughs> so you can uh, fire on a, them. on a day to day basis. We're letting them run with it. We're not running the property day to day basis. So there is some framework for, you know, day to day decisions that goes into, you know, exhibit A or whatever that allows them to run the property on a day to day basis. But as as decisions, you know, if there's a if there's a financing or a sale or a big lease, um, you know, or some major, you know, additional capex or something that uh, hits certain thresholds then you know, um, then, then we have decision rights and we're, we're fairly involved on the, on the capital. We're not, we're not a purely passive allocator and there are purely passive allocators. Um, and, uh, and they're probably wonderful. Um, we are not like in, the, we're not there with you every single day, but you know, we, we're on the phone every couple of weeks and we're so that's fairly it looks, involved. Is it, is it, does it look like sort of regular calls between your asset management? Yeah. Guy every couple of weeks we're, you know, two weeks, four weeks, whatever. And I you're mean, looking we're pretty at budgets and, yeah. but yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I think. I, I ask that again because um, I think uh, we're, we're a hybrid, right? We're because we operate, we're also capable of you know staying close enough to to and not afraid to take over the deal if you absolutely had to. Yeah, we won't do a deal that we won't that we're you know afraid of taking over, which is why we haven't done development or why we haven't gotten to like very hairy you know deals is because if it, if there's a deal that you know it, we can't take over and confidently manage, then we're probably not going to do the deal. Okay, um, so. So we talked about this process for sort of like going and establishing um, a network of, of operators. Uh, we talked about negotiating the terms with them. Um, as time has gone on and cap rates have compressed, um, you have, you've sort of moved in that direction away from doing direct deals towards this uh, quote unquote passively allocating. Um, I want to talk more now about the kind of stuff you're seeing both um, the, 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 the deals themselves, the asset class market and, and, uh, projected performance of those deals. And also about the terms that you are being offered by, uh, the operators themselves or that you're discussing with the operators themselves. So let's talk first about, um, what kind of stuff are you interested in and seeing right now? Okay. So 
the way that I generally view the world is that there is uh, there there if you're trying to invest in real estate, right? If you just take it very very basic, there's there's a few ways to buy real estate. One, you can buy public REITs. You can buy for ten dollars, and you get access to you know a gigantic portfolio of uh, of real estate. And it's that real estate is there. It's not like you're buying paper. They own real estate, right? That's the easiest way to do it. Over time, people have found you know more investment in private alternatives and private private real estate, and the flows to private real estate have been astronomical to the point where you know the reason that people were doing private real estate in the first place is because public real estate, you know, public REITs were much more expensive, and there were real opportunities in private real estate to generate returns above market, right? There's there's a fundamental level of market returns for real estate. You know, yes, there's geographic overlays and there's, you know, product type overlays or whatever, but like there is a baseline that the market is going to return. Um, and so if you're going to pay somebody fees and a waterfall, you know, when somebody sends me a 15% IRR or whatever, you know, oh, here, here's the deal. Will you look at it? It's a 15 IRR. I don't see a 15 IRR as like, oh, you're doing a 15 IRR. There's some component of that 15 IRR that is the market doing the heavy lifting for you. And then there's some component of that IRR that is ostensibly what the operator is supposed to add value and create above what the market is giving them. Uh, and, and then, you know, that operator says, okay, but I want to take this much in, in, in waterfall, which kind of takes you, you know, promote and fees, which takes me as the allocator back down towards market. And so there's, there's basically a whole dial of, uh, of, of promote and, and profit sharing that is like, okay, if I'm, you know, if there is absolutely no waterfall whatsoever, then I capture 100% of the value add above what the market has given. Once you start to turn that dial and that turn that knob, you're now bringing me back closer and closer and closer to what I would get in the market if I just sprayed and prayed into whatever. And you'd, and, and you'd by buying REITs or whatever, and you'd get liquidity and yeah, you'd get right, audits exactly. and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and so, like I said, like I, I come from a finance background, right? So I, I, when somebody says, okay, I want, you know, 60 over a six or 60 over an eight or whatever, um, you know, we also have the ability, and we're looking at a lot of this right now, is preferred equity in MES. Um, and, those, and, and that's basically, you know, it's capped upside. It's just, you're basically just lending, subordinate financing. Um, uh, but you have, you know, you have real equity subordination beneath you. So, for example, if somebody says, uh, you know, we did an apartment, uh, we did a deal last year where we were preferred equity behind an agency loan on an apartment deal where, you know, the agency was providing 70 something and they really wanted more leverage, 85%. Um, so we said, okay, we'll do that 15%. Um, uh, and they're putting in 15% subordinate. Um, and you know, we're charging whatever it is, 13, 14. Um, that Let's, also doesn't exist anymore. Um, I, I want to, before we move on past it, I just want to, because, um, some of the people in the audience are obviously like have done a million of these deals and they're very sophisticated. There are uh, plenty of other people who are probably hearing what you're saying right now. I'm like eyes glazing over. Um, and so I want to just tease out, um, how more, I want to go into a little bit more detail about how that is being structured, why you're getting the return you're getting and why you're comfortable doing, allowing someone to yeah. go to, to 85% leverage. So walk us through that. So there's a senior loan at 70% or something like that. Yeah. So, okay. So for example, in that one, so this is someone, sorry, uh, apologies for interrupting you. Um, someone's buying an apartment building. Is this like going to be a value add thing? They're going to fix it up and flip it. Yeah. But in this particular case and what we really like about it, and we won't do preferred equity, uh, behind a bridge loan, um, going up that high, 
because the whole point is that we're trying to not take the interest rate risk. So in that one, it's a 10-year agency loan, um, but our preferred equity is a three to five-year preferred equity. So even in the event that we're not paid off by five years, we still have five years of agency at two, three percent. In other words, us. if you if you have to take over the building, if we take over the building in five years, we still have five years of runway behind the senior loan. So we're not exposed to to any sort of maturity risk um, at, at the point that we take over. And I would be happy to own that property at a fifteen percent discount to today's market. Um, with term left on the with term left on the okay. senior loan for five so years. So you're coming in and you're providing. Uh, so somebody says, "Okay, I'll pay you thirteen, and that's all you're going to get." I'm very happy with that. If they pay me off, fantastic. If they don't pay me off, now I own a property at a fifteen percent discount um, to uh, to to you know their basis. And they're willing to do that because it juices in in their mind. It's juicing the return to the to the equity, which is going to take the losses before you guys do. Correct. Yes. And I think this opportunity exists because there's a lot of risk taking in the market right now. So people are much happier to take higher leverage today um, than, they, than they were uh, a few years ago, which is a very funny you know, market quirk that as the market gets more expensive, people are also willing to take more um, additional leverage. Um, and so, you know, that's why, you know, it, our our history has always been, you know, joint venture value add or direct value add. Um, but as the market has shifted, we've kind of, you know, instead of looking for different asset classes or whatever, because the distress doesn't exist um, outside, you know, maybe hospitality or whatever, not really there either. Uh, it, we we decided that, uh, you know, there's a f you just have to adapt, right? You just have to adapt with the market and everybody adapts in a different way. Some people go to different asset classes, some people buy core, whatever. You just have to adapt. And our adaptation was doing more of this subordinate financing stuff where if we can still earn, albeit a capped interest, you know, a capped 12, 13, 14 percent return. Um, we're uh, we're we're happy to to take that trade off of the additional upside um, for the you know 15 to 20 percent common equity subordination, and we're again happy to own it. Um, uh, I don't want to own it. <laughs> I want to no, tell I, all my borrowers I don't want to own it. Um, let me ask. You're not Apollo then. <laughs> no, we're also not really lenders. I don't even like lending. Yeah, no, I, I was lending. I was gonna ask you. So I don't even want to lend. I want to buy shit. <laughs> this is really annoying to me that I have to lend. I don't even want to do it. Is is and, and I guess point of clarification. Um, so this you're calling it pref equity. Is it um, uh, uh, is it act from a tax perspective? Is it interest or is it's it? Interest. It's interest. So you're not getting like a depreciation shield or anything like that. You can negotiate some, but yeah, it's interest. in general. You're just it's basically yeah. Like no, a high it's level. not. It's not terribly tax efficient. It sucks. Look, I'm telling you, I don't even want to do it. <laughs> okay, I'm just doing it because that's like what the market is giving me. So I will just take what the market gives me. But I, I mean, I would rather buy stuff. I mean, we did we did buy an office building. Um, it was our first acquisition in a long time, a few months ago back to St. Louis after we sold a bunch of stuff in St. Louis. So we had a big portfolio in St. Louis. We sold most of it. Um, and then a few months ago, uh, we bought another office building in St. Louis. And I was very happy to buy something, <laughs> um, uh, especially in a market that we knew particularly well. And it was, uh, it was a, you know, it's a really trophy asset. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a top five building for St. Louis. I'm much happier. But, you know, that was also, they, that's just not, it's not, thematic it's not scalable it was like a one-off deal that came out to market last year and then something happened so they pulled it from market so then it came back to market and we weren't going to win the first time but then we did get to win the second time um but that's not it's not repeatable um i want to switch now to talking about um how you're capitalized because uh, when we talked previously um you you've raised three of these discretionary funds and 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 like when i get discretion it's you can buy Apartment buildings with five units or more in Los Angeles County. 
um, that have a big value add component. The kind of discretionary that you've been getting for your three existing funds is much broader than that. I mean, you guys can do anything. Yeah, I think except casinos. Which is, and- which is like a lot of people out here are thinking that that's like a dream. And yet, um, in our conversation previously, uh, you were talking about moving uh, more towards a deal-by-deal model. Yeah, so the market has changed not just in the types of deals that you can do, but also in the way that capital can be raised. So like I was saying, you know, Keith said the grass is always greener, and I think that's true. We've been doing these little funds for the last eight years, but... You know, having a $60 million fund or whatever meant something five years ago, six years ago. It doesn't mean anything today. I mean, you know, so why? uh, You're not getting the benefit of of having. Yeah, you're not really getting the benefit of it uh, as long as you have, you know, as long as you think you have investors who will close deals on a deal by deal basis. And I think this is the direction that we're going to go is uh, is the deal by deal route. um, Because the market, there, there is no benefit for a small fund. So like. You either have a gigantic fund where you're not really, you don't really care about the returns. You're like, I'm going to do $200 million multifamily, $200 million industrial, $200 million life science, and I'm going to go raise another fund. And that's an asset management fee play. You're yeah, that's stacking, asset management recurring. Fee. So like as- our options are you can become a gigantic fund, uh, which, uh, which I, look, I mean, to be quite honest, I'm, I'm a very bad, you know, sale. I can't sit in front of a pension fund and be like, well, I'm going to get you alpha. <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'm, <laughs> I promise. <laughs> like sitting in front of some like you know cur- Korean, you yeah, some like cur- cur- Korean insurance. Uh, this is it. I'm, we are the ones who see the off-market deals, not right. the other twelve right, right. guys exactly. doing the exact same thing. So like I'm just like terrible at that. Uh, and so if we're just you know if we're so focused on returns, then it's just going to be better for us to go deal by deal than it is to like you know. Yeah, talk it. about the downsides because we've experienced this too. Talk about the downsides of running a fund. So you're not getting the upside is okay. Of course, here's the yeah. downside of running a fund. We were in contract to sell the last property in two of our funds, uh, and we've been waiting eight years <laughs> for promote. <laughs> To crystallize, yeah. and the buyer fell out of contract. He didn't fall out of contract. He handed us a deposit the day of closing. So now we still own these two properties. It's been you know seven years, and like we're still waiting. We've sold like fifteen properties. And we're like still waiting for that last check. <laughs> and all your promote is in is effectively in this last. Yeah, one. it's all in there. But you guys basically own this last building. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So like you know we're uh, that's the downside of it is uh, is, the, the cross is, is the cross promote. Yeah. Um, and you know, if you have a billion dollar fund, it doesn't matter. You don't care because you, you don't care about who cares about the promote. Yeah. Um, but if, if, if you do care, then you care. Right. Okay. So, um, so this is a switch though for you because, uh, the, the funds talk to me like minimum check size. Like, what are we talking about? The check size of the funds? Like are these, like these are it seven figures. Half a million to 5 million, I guess. Okay. So, uh, and deal by deal is potentially a different, somewhat a di- of a different audience, right? Yeah, totally. I'm terrified of going deal by deal, even though we have, you know, 10 years. Cause you I just, just got to talk to Keith. I just, yeah, <laughs> I'll talk to Keith after. Um, uh, I, cause I don't know how it's going to go. Cause we've never done it. Right. We've, we, we've had, you know, distinct, uh, fundraising cycles that are several years apart. Um, and then we haven't had to think about it for a while. Uh, and so on a deal by deal basis, I really don't know how it's going to go. Um, so I, you know, part of me is excited to start from scratch like that. Um, I think it's going to be a, a new challenge. Um, part of me has no idea what's going to happen. I'll tell you, we did it from, um, so, so we historically had done, uh, uh, joint ventures, one off and programmatic with uh, very wealthy families that wrote the whole check for a deal or a series of deals. Uh, and then we've also raised these tiny discretionary funds, even smaller than yours, um, and and did our first kind of classic syndication uh, six months ago or so. And you know what? We, like, we sucked at it. 
like we got the we raised the money and we just have done a subsequent one. We raised the money on that, but it's amazing how different the fundraising process is when you when you're under time pressure to actually go close on a deal. Um, so have you thought about uh, the the the, uh, the actual like the mechanics of how you're going to how you're going to build the investor list, how you're going to manage the investor relations process? Uh, I have not. <laughs> Again, talk to Keith. Uh, um, we're gonna we're gonna stumble through. We're gonna, you're gonna stumble we're gonna through, and, 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 and presumably you go back to those. The yeah, look, we still have like relationships. Are, I mean, it's not like all of a sudden those relationships disappear. Um, and we're certainly not gonna commit to a deal without knowing that a handful of people are going to be there. Even though you know the most likely route is that we'll find some uh, a few people who will commit to it, and then we'll backfill. You know, to commit to closing, and then we will syndicate after closing and backfill them and repatriate some of their equity as might guess and your idea is that that will so so uh in your head when you're thinking about this new model you're thinking about a series of deals of what size or do you not know is it like i think it's going to be the same thing that we've been doing i think it's just going to be you know exactly the same thing that we've been doing um except that the difference is that you know we've never been able to buy a deal that we thought we could own forever um and we've never been able to do a deal that was like you know a, a two-year flip instead of a three to seven year hold because, because it has to fun. fit a very specific box so now that box gets to open up a little bit a little bit wider and so if we see a deal that we're like you know what this is not a home run, but it's a good deal to hold forever that we can go raise money for it. If there's a deal that's a, you know, that we had to turn away because it was a two-year flip, um, then you know we can do that. But realistically, it's still going to be a lot of the same kind of stuff that we're looking at now and just kind of moving with, with where the market moves. I mean, that's just kind of our, our thing is just moving as, you know, the, the market is like these waves in the ocean and you just kind of have to, you don't like sometimes where the waves push you. Um, but and, if but you're you not got, entrepreneurial firm, you have but to, like, you, you know, you adapt. can either, you know, you can either go with the wave or you can like crash into rocks or something. I don't know. <laughs> so I guess, um, I want to, I want to close our conversation by talking to you about where you see those waves going. So like, obviously right now you're, 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 you're seeing a lot of deals from a lot of different people all over the country, different asset classes. Um, we all know that multifamily, industrial, in this crowd, self-storage, <laughs> um, uh, have got are really hot right now. Um, uh, and obviously, there are other asset classes that are less hot, although everything feels pretty inflated. Um, do you have a view on where the wave's going, like where, where opportunity is and uh, where you'd like to follow it? I don't really... Uh, I'm very bad at that. Um, cause if I was good at that, then I wouldn't have gone, I would have just bought a bunch of Los Angeles apartments in 2013 <laughs> instead of St. Louis. So I'm obviously <laughs> really terrible at that. Um, uh, if, but there's nothing that suggests to me that anything that is currently happening is going to stop anytime soon and is likely going to just continue on the way that it is. Um, so I don't. I mean, I, I don't see any reason that the current waves aren't just going to continue to get larger. And you're, and so, and when you're looking, you so presumably you are also though being pitched deals in at, out of favor asset classes. Um, you know, are people bringing you retail deals and hotel deals and you're just saying, look, there's just not enough meat on the bone here. Uh, or, or are you just not seeing those deals at all? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, well, the problem with, you know, retail or hospitality or office, let's just say though, there's a kind of, you know, less favorable asset classes is that, um, is that within those asset classes, you still have very good assets and very good locations. You have very good hotels, you have very good office properties and you have very good shop, you know, retail, um, uh, buildings. Right. And, and the, the really good properties 
those aren't those aren't out of they're favor. not in distress yeah they're, they're not yeah. they're not out of favor and then you have the less good ones within those and those are trash so that's a problem <laughs> Um, uh, because those aren't, you know, those are all, those aren't just like one gigantic asset class anymore. There's like, there's, there's good parts of those asset classes. And then there's this stuff that is garbage. Um, and, and so, you know, it's the stuff, the stuff that is actually worth owning is not under distress. So the, you know, the, the difficulty, which is what we wake up every day trying to do is like trying to find the properties that are actually good within those asset classes that are getting for whatever reason lumped. Uh, you know, with the with the with the worst stuff, um, and then to to pick those out. Um, but that's not like a hugely scalable model. Um, you just you know you do a deal every I don't know a few deals a year like that. But you can't you're not going to deploy hundreds of millions of dollars into something like that. I think I want to leave it there. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.